Welcome to the Sustainability Agenda podcast. My name is Fergal Byrne. Every week I speak to leading figures from the world of sustainability and explore the sustainability agenda in marketing and strategy, technology, innovation, investment and finance. We look at the latest thinking, what's working and the future and evolution of the sustainability agenda. It's a confrontational concept and it's on purpose like that because growth is such an untouchable totem for societies. It has taken the place of what religion used to be once upon a time and that's something that uh, God was something that no one could question or no one could be against. Uh, so degrowth has a little bit the confrontational sense of being an atheist back in, I don't know, 17th or 16th century. So the term signifies that there is obviously a problem, a problem with growth. Um, we, uh, it signifies a critique of the idea of perpetual and uh, ad infinitum uh, economic uh, growth. To start uh, from the ecological point of view, the problem is that uh, growth is uh, very tightly related with uh, with environmental damage. Uh, and when I say environmental damage, I mean uh, first and foremost, uh, right now, carbon emissions and climate change. I mean, uh, the scientists are telling us that uh, at the current pace of increase of carbon uh, emissions, we are probably going to change uh, our climate within the next 50 years in ways that will make uh, large parts of the planet uninhabitable. And we are going to change the living conditions in the planet in ways that are beyond even our, our worst uh, nightmares. And we know that carbon emissions statistically, scientifically, in whatever way we want to put it, are very tightly linked uh, to increases in GDP. And there is no, there's no doubt about this uh, historical relationship. But also all sorts of other factors, if you take them uh, at the global scale and not at the scale of a particular nation, of a particular city, all other important factors like uh, biodiversity, uh, soil erosion, etc. are very tightly linked uh, to the scale and the acceleration of economic activity. I'm very pleased today to welcome Georgios Kallas to the Sustainability Agenda podcast. Georgios is an environmental scientist working on ecological economics and political ecology. He's a Lever Whom visiting professor at SOAS, an ICREA professor at the Autonomous University at Barcelona. He's a leading thinker in the emerging field of degrowth, an approach based on ecological economics that aims for the economy to achieve a steady state of growth that allows it to operate within the Earth's biophysical limits. He's the co-editor of Degrowth, a vocabulary for a new era. Well, many thanks, Georgios, for taking the time today to speak to the sustainability agenda and to uh, tell us a little bit about this, uh, the world of degrowth and uh, the work that you do. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me. So can you maybe just tell me a little bit about what, what you do and uh, the, 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 your role in, in the university and maybe a little bit of the, the kind of research uh, projects that, that, that interest you at the moment? I'm an ecological economist. I was trained as an environmental scientist. Uh, during my PhD, I came across the field of ecological economics, which is an interdisciplinary field. Uh, it's not a subset of economics, but it's an interdisciplinary field that was born in the 1980s and tried to bring together ecologists, environmental scientists and economists. But uh, the idea being uh, the creation of uh, different theories of trying to understand the economy in a more ecological way, understand more the materiality of the economy rather than not just theorize the economy as something that it's uh, separated uh, from nature. So I was trained in this field in, uh, during my PhD and then after I became a professor at the late stage, I would say in my career, I also took a training through a master's in, let's say, mainstream and standard microeconomics. Uh, so my concern has always been that, trying to understand the, the economy uh, in a more integrated and ecological manner. And of course, one of the key theses and concerns of ecological economics is that uh, the idea of perpetual growth at 3% per year or 2 or 3% per year is uh, ecologically impossible and unsustainable. 
And this is like uh, the research in many different ways that we can discuss um, uh, working on together with my students and collaborators. Right, right, very interesting. So, uh, uh, quite a, you do quite a lot of work in the area of degrowth, uh, <laughs> economics or de degrowth. Uh, can you tell me a little bit about that? What does it actually mean? It's a, it's a pretty confrontational title. It gets you immediately. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like, what, what, what could this possibly be? And uh, you tell us a little bit about it. Yeah, it's a confrontational concept and it's some purpose like that because growth is such a untouchable totem uh, for societies. It has taken the place of what religion used to be once upon a time, and that's something that uh, God was something that no one could question or no one could be against. Uh. So degrowth has a little bit the confrontational sense of being an atheist back in, I don't know, 17th or 16th century. So the term signifies that there is obviously a problem, uh, a problem with growth. Um, that we it signifies a critique of the idea of perpetual and uh, ad infinitum uh, economic uh, growth and it, uh, as such opens up the possibility of uh, thinking about uh, alternatives to economic growth. Right, right. Well, um, I, I suppose... It... Well, traditionally we tend to look at economic growth as a good thing, responsible for all kinds of good things like employment and prosperity. What do you see as the problems with economic growth? The problems are many, but if we start uh, from the ecological point of view, the problem is that uh, growth is uh, very tightly related with, uh, with environmental damage. Uh, and when I say environmental damage, I mean uh, first and foremost, uh, right now, carbon emissions and climate change. I mean, uh, the scientists are telling us that at the current pace of increase of carbon emissions, we are probably going to change our climate within the next 50 years in ways that will make large parts of the planet uninhabitable. And we know that carbon emissions statistically, scientifically, in whatever way we want to put it, are very tightly linked to increases in GDP. And there is no, there's no doubt about this historical relationship. But also all sorts of other factors, if you take them uh, at the global scale and not at the scale of a particular nation, of a particular city, all other important factors like uh, biodiversity, uh, soil erosion, etc. are very tightly linked uh, to the scale and the acceleration of economic activity. So in one sense, economic growth uh, is bad because it's uh, undermining uh, the very conditions of living in this planet. So we are, we are living, or some of us are living slightly better in this period, but at the expense of uh, future generations. Right. So that's, that's yeah. one main problem, well, there are many others that we can yes. discuss. <laughs> yes. Um, there does seem to be increasing awareness and uh, of, of of some of these issues certainly, and and a lot more talk about you know sustainable growth and sustainable development. What's what's wrong with that, or in what way is that inadequate? It sounds like degrowth is a much more radical idea, and you know it's against growth uh, generally rather than you know certain kinds of growth, which which you know clearly everybody would agree are not good. Yeah, I mean, let me let me say one more problem with growth. First of all, the very idea of growth at uh, the scale of the economy, where economic activity grows to three percent per year, is uh, on the on its very foundation is like a let's say an unreasonable idea. You know, like any number that grows at three percent per year or two percent per year, you know, the doubles every thirty five years, and something that doubles then. After, after, after 35 years, it's four times bigger, eight times bigger, 16 times bigger, 32 times bigger, up to infinity, you know? And we know that nothing can grow to infinity. At some point, uh, there are limits. So the very idea of, uh, of growth is problematic. So, but uh, uh, on top of that, the sustainability, the sustainability challenge is not new. I mean, had the first conference in Stockholm was back in 72 and then in 92 there was a famous uh, Rio conference and then in 95 there was the sustainable development report by Brookland etc. So the challenge uh, the challenge is there, we've been discussing it, we've been creating thousands of reports about it, thousands of commitments but we are not talking and we are not dealing with the elephant in the room which is simply as ecological economists have said since the 1980s 
a bigger economy means more emissions and consumes more resources, and there's no way going around it. Um, so, of course, we can make hopeful dreams that uh, some kind of magical technologies or some kind of magical changes and restructurings, restructurings of the economy will make it possible to dematerialize or make possible to have, a, I don't know, continuous economic growth ad infinitum with uh, powered by solar and, uh, and wind. But I, I think, I mean, my reading of both the data and the science around these issues, it's that these are fancy, fancy, wishful thinking, but it, uh, it won't happen and it hasn't happened. And it hasn't happened uh, 30 years now. I mean, it's not a, a new discussion about sustainability or a new discussion about the possibility of having growth while reducing environmental damage. So what, I th what we are trying to do with the degrowth uh, debate or the degrowth concept is to point to the elephant in the room and start talking about it. Start talking of how we can prosper without growth rather than saying that we need growth at all costs and then wish and hope that somehow this can be decoupled from environmental damage. Right, right. That's interesting. Um, I, I, I mean, you say it's been 30 years um, and certainly there's there's been a lot of momentum and uh, mm. I think many people are optimistic after COP21 that there's, uh, you know, a, a, a big step change in terms of commitments, not just awareness and talk, but in terms of commitments. And what would be wrong with, you know, low carbon growth? Hey. COP21 was, was good in the sense that uh, it, it seems for the first time that governments are realizing the, the challenge ahead and they are, they are seriously, seriously realizing that something has to be done. But I think what, what has been agreed is far from satisfactory in the sense that it's still betting on that somehow we will manage to decouple uh, the economy from carbon emissions, which I think is a reasonable is a reasonable goal to try to develop low carbon technologies, but at the same time, this will be let's say lost in the sea of an increasing economy that grows at two or three percent per year. So, like if the economy grows to three percent per year, the the the, the type of uh, improvements that we will need in terms of energy producing technologies are unrealistically unrealistically high, in my view. Right. Uh, and also the COP agreement to a large extent depends on this another fantastical technological fix that is that after 2050 somehow we'll be able to put, uh, to take carbon out of the atmosphere and back in. I mean through, through forestation, uh, reforestation programs whose uh, effectiveness in taking carbon back is questioned but also whose uh, repercussions in terms of land use and land use conflicts are, are very high. It's not that we can suddenly turn the whole planet into forest without impacting on anything else or without impacting on the economy. And then, of course, there are some wild dreams about carbon capture and storage or uh, geoengineering, etc. But it still a lot depends on, um, on wishful thinking about technological solutions rather than on concrete agreements on how we can restructure the economy. And I agree with you that uh, the growth doesn't mean that everything in the economy, the economy has to string or downscale. It, of course, would lead to selective degrowth. So some things like especially dirty industries or activities that they are very carbon intensive uh, will have to degrow while renewable energies, different ways of producing, different modes of transport will have uh, to grow uh, to an extent. But the overall path, the overall path, uh, will undoubtedly be an economy that will be smaller, an economy that will move uh, slower. We cannot imagine that we will be keep both uh, reduced carbon emissions and at the same time fly at the pace, frequency, and the speed with which we are flying now. That we can be in the other part of the world just for the weekend. It's 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 really unrealistic to think that we we can seriously. Uh, reduce carbon emissions to the extent that we commit that we want to reduce them and keep living like that and not only keep living like that but keep growing like that at two or three percent per year right right that's very interesting i mean it it, it sounds on the one hand that there's a, a very strong theoretical uh component uh and i suppose it's at a fairly early stage the, these ideas of degrowth in one sense 
side by side with traditional economics. To what extent is there a practical uh, dimension to the to this? Uh, and can you talk a little bit about some of the ideas that you think are most promising? Um, first of all, let me say that the theoretical background to that is, is not is not that new. I mean, the term "degrowth" as a slogan that tries to trigger this type of debate is new, but uh, the ideas behind it are quite old. Uh, my field of ecological economics uh, has a big history. I mean, uh, Herman Daly, a notable ecological economist, was publishing in the top uh, economic journals back in the 1970s, talking about the steady state economy and the need to move to a steady state. Uh, my mentor, Richard Norgard from UC Berkeley, another notable ecological economist, and actually uh, funnily so, student of Milton Friedman in Chicago, of course nothing to do with the ideas of Milton Friedman, very critical of them, but he was studying oil and the economy back uh, back in the 70s too, and he was a professor in, in Berkeley in the 80s, writing about the problems with economic development and the way it was exported to, to the Amazon. So these are ideas have been there uh, for a long time about the unsustainability of growth and of development uh, based on growth. It's just that we are packaging them under a new term, and perhaps contemporary, making them more contemporary or slightly modifying their conceptualization under the term degrowth. So this has been uh, here for a while. What is ca currently new is like a more concrete commitment with trying to think both um, the type of policies or institutions that could make economies prosper without growth, and a preoccupation and um, studying of uh, concrete alternatives uh, that people themselves or grassroots groups uh, are organizing on the ground, trying to cope with the actual uh, end of growth or end of growth for, for the middle classes in the global north. So now we have a more concrete uh, Concern with trying to see the alternatives, as you were saying. And I can discuss about alternatives both at the level of thinking about macroeconomic policies and at the level of uh, grassroots, uh, grassroots practices. Right, right. Uh, I, I, I guess um, at the heart of this also must be the idea of what you measure when you measure growth, because I know the uh, concept of GDP has had uh, some critics um, over the years um, talking about what it is that you're actually measuring and whether it's a, a, a good measure um, and a useful measure, um, well, I suppose one of, of economic activity, but particularly when it comes to the you know sustainability questions. Yeah, can you talk a little bit about uh, GDP uh, as, a, as a useful measure and how you like to think about it? Yeah, GDP measures economic activity and doesn't distinguish between good or bad economic activity. So, you know, building a prison or cleaning an oil spill is good for the economy to the extent that you move capital around, yeah, people do more work to clean the spill, etc. So that's, that's a well-known uh, criticism of GDP. And, uh, of course, we can think of uh, alternative indicators of well-being or welfare and try to see whether these are improving or not. And the people who have done it have found out that indeed they are not increasing. So growth does not correlate with them after a certain level that satisfies basic needs. So if you try to, to value well-being subjectively by asking people how happy they are, you see that there is no link between uh, growth and an increase of the number of people who declare that they are happy in a particular country. If you try to measure well-being objectively, trying to subtract this type of social and environmental costs out of the goods. Again, you find a kind of stagnation of well-being starting already since the 1970s in advanced uh, economies. So there is a problem with GDP, but I don't think the problem is, is exhausted with GDP, because GDP is an indicator that plays a very particular function, which within the particular system, economic system that we have, it does play its function, which is to measure the overall economic activity and provide a tool for governments to calculate how much revenue they might have and then try to implement macroeconomic policies to stabilize the economy. That was the, the Keynesian policies of 
the 40s and 50s, and this was around the time that uh, after the 30s that GDP appeared and uh, took hold as a main indicator that governments were using. So the GDP is, is playing a role that in an economy that is geared to grow or collapse, you need to know whether the economy is growing or not and accordingly uh, plan uh, government uh, action. So in that sense, yes, the GDP is an indicator, but I think it's it's, it's not just uh, simply a matter of changing GDP or using alternative indicators. Again, this is a discussion that even mainstream economists have accepted and endorsed the last 30 years. And then the question becomes, so why? Why are we still stuck with uh, GDP? We're stuck with the GDP because we're stuck with a system that needs GDP. Right, right. That's interesting. You know, you, you mentioned that uh, degrowth theory, maybe not so cold, but uh, these ideas have been around for some time. What about the whole idea of economic growth? Um, that seems to have been around um, for, 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 for quite a long time. How, what, do, do you, uh, can you talk a little bit about uh, the, those ideas and, and the roots of, 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 of the idea of economic growth? Yeah, I was surprised. I mean, me myself, I was surprised because I hadn't looked uh, that close in the history of economic growth and I was surprised to when I first read the work of a famous anthropologist from Columbia University, Timothy Mitchell, uh, writing about the, he calls it the invention of the economy, and he was basically arguing that the, the idea of thinking uh, of the economy as an independent system, you know, that it's uh, also national-based, like the idea of the national economy, it's quite recent, it's from the 30s and 40s, and it was an idea that came uh, along uh, the ideas of Keynes. So the idea that you can manage a thing called the economy, and, uh, and that this thing called the economy uh, naturally has to grow uh, year after year. It's interesting that the word economy before was used more in the since ancient Greek times, actually, in the more active verbs of economizing, saving rather than a system that it's out there and it's called the economy. Now, this doesn't mean that these uh, ideas uh, do not have a, a, a longer, longer history behind. So, of course, uh, Adam Smith was talking about the wealth of nations. He wouldn't use the word growth. He would talk about the increase of uh, production. But I think it's interesting that the... In the first classical economists, uh, you wouldn't find this idea of perpetual year-after-year year growth, you know. They would say why some nations are more wealthy than others. How can a nation uh, become wealthier? But the idea was not that a nation would get wealthier year-after-year year at infinitum. And of course, there were also important political economists at the time, and I'm not talking about uh, radical uh, revolutionaries like Marx. Uh, John Stuart Mill, who was an accepted, uh, like a reformist economist of his time and, and, uh, and a notable political economist, he was writing about the stationary state back in the 19th century. And if you read quotes from his work, you would be surprised. I mean, he was, he was thinking that there was no reason why the economy could not reach a stationary satisfactory state at levels that uh, were slightly higher than the levels of economic activity at his time. And we're talking about 19th century, which compared to our levels now are like uh, several times uh, lower. So the idea of a perpetual growth, year after year growth, 2 or 3 percent, uh, is a surprisingly new idea that uh, first started getting formulated alongside the idea of the economy and the GDP in the 1930s and really takes off uh, in the 1950s. Right, right. Because um, I, I know that uh, one of the, uh, you, we talked about, uh, and you've talked about before, this idea of fetishizing growth. Um, what mm. does that really mean? And can you give me some examples? It means that, uh, you know, like an indicator like uh, the GDP becomes a... Becomes, let's say, uh, an objective. The increase of this indicator becomes uh, an objective in an objective in and for itself. So we fetishize because we don't see what is uh, behind it, or it's like uh, we look at it and it's like this thing, this this indicator has uh, has to has to increase without thinking what is it behind it. What does it mean that it increases? What environmental and social costs uh, does this increase have? 
where are we taking the materials um, with which we are fueling the increase of uh, this indicator? Who is producing these ever-increasing products and where? And what implications does this have uh, on nature, but also on, uh, on human bodies? So wh where is this coming from? So th that's, that's the idea of fetishizing and not looking the substance that is behind. The substance behind is that we went well-being for all people and uh, well-being for all people or prosperity if you want for all people does not necessarily come through the increase of this uh, indicator on GDP. Right, that's, that's, that's clear. Um, that's very interesting. Um, so, so what does an economy that's not growing <laughs> look like? It's, it seems it's hard to conceive in some respects. Yeah, it's hard to conceive, but I mean, part of the problem is that now no one is willing even to, to try to conceive it, you know. So the people who are doing research, it's, we are quite few. And I mean, we are having a, every two years the conference, on, international conference on the growth. And the, it's a big conference in the sense that we have to, Last time we had 500 people or more in Budapest. Two years ago we had two or three thousand in Leipzig. But still, it's a small community, and it's very few people, especially economists, who are working on these questions. A few, let's say, heterodox or radical economists, are working on that, and literally almost no one uh, in the mainstream. And I'm mainstream, I mean either neoclassical or Keynesian economics. Uh, but once you start. Uh, trying to think what an economy would look like or whether an economy that doesn't grow is plausible, you see that's not so implausible. Actually, I'm, I'm uh, reviewing and evaluating an excellent uh, PhD thesis that it's coming out of the um, University of ha Hamburg. Stefan Lange is the name and it's called Macroeconomics Without Growth, which basically does what uh, no economist ever put the, the time to do, which is to take the basic models of macroeconomics of growth, like neoclassical, Keynesian, Marxian models. And he says, like, okay, if, if we were to have zero growth, what would it take? And have stable, stable conditions, you know? And it's not that unthinkable what it would take. I mean, on the one hand, it would take to avoid unemployment, assuming that productivity increases year after year and that we, we don't have growth. Uh, the basic idea is that uh, we should uh, reduce the working hours, so share the work and have uh, people, um, people uh, more, more people uh, work less. And that this condition satisfies a stable path of zero growth, both in neoclassical economic models and Keynesian, and Keynesian economic models. So it's not true that we cannot conceive, at least uh, in theory, um, economy without growth. Another condition is uh, to zero down on uh, net investment, which means that investment, total investment, should be more or less stabilized at uh, the level of depreciation of capital. This doesn't mean, of course, that we won't be investing on renewable energies, etc. So we can reallocate investments to sectors that they are uh, low carbon and more labor intensive to provide work uh, for people, but at the same time, de invest from uh, dirty industries or sectors that they are very let's say, uh, productive in the bad sense, that they don't need people uh, to work. Of course, you might tell me this sounds, th this, these reforms, like they might sign the nice on paper or they might work nice and stable equilibrium on, or stable conditions in economic models, but they are very difficult politically because they would require a certain redistribution uh, from capital to workers. So then we start uh, discussing politically and we start discussing whether this is possible or not or what would it take for transformations of that sort. But it's not true that we cannot um, we cannot conceive of an economy that doesn't grow and that it's stable and that it's also prosperous in a sense. Right, right. I'm thinking uh, one of the ideas you talk about there in terms of uh, sharing work and so forth and um, I just wonder I mean looking at the UK at the moment for example it seems to be at uh, some very high level of employment even though a lot of the jobs that are around uh, the job growth has been uh, in very insecure uh, jobs zero contract jobs and so <laughs> forth and the, given the hugely growing interest in, and, 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 and uh, problems and challenges around uh, economic inequality 
you know, uh, it would seem to be uh, uh, challenging to 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 con conceive of a way of of telling people who are already, um, you know, uh, in in difficult situation uh, with respect to their work and their financial situation that they need to share with other people. Yeah, man. I mean, the the interesting thing is that they would share without losing their weight. So that's. Which might sound counterproductive, but once you do a little bit of the math, at least in Keynesian models, you see that uh, this would create a, a stable condition of zero growth, assuming that there is a productivity productivity increase. Well, so if we assume that we are, the economy becomes more and more productive each year, so it can produce more with the same labor, this means that if this was not to become profit and capital and be reinvested, it could be instead be used to liberate people to make them uh, work less uh, while being paid the same. So they would have the same uh, the same weights. They wouldn't consume more, so we wouldn't have an increase of uh, of uh, consumption production, environmental production. Uh, sorry, environmental damage. And at the same time, uh, they would have more free time, so they would work less at the same weights, which would mean mean a higher weights per hour work which I don't think uh, many people would disagree with. And actually, it was what happened in most of the, um, of the advanced world in the 60s, 70s, 80s. I mean, uh, Greece was a relatively laggard economy in this sense, but I remember pretty vividly the day that my parents told me that we weren't going to have school anymore on Saturdays and they're not going to go to work. They were medical doctors in the hospital every Saturday. So it was the introduction of the five-day work week. We were having five and a half to six days in Greece at that time. And this was the early 80s. So uh, it is possible to share work and reduce working hours. And actually, if the overall idea is how to make an economy stable at zero growth conditions it's, uh, and provide employment in it, in it, it's part of the, of the equation. Right now, though, in Britain, the equation is not that. The equation is how can we sustain profits at the level that they are, first and foremost, and how we can have growth. Not growth that trickles down, because it doesn't trickle down anymore. We know that the median wages are exactly the same the last 10 or 20 years in most advanced economies. Generally, growth to, that goes to the upper 1% and sustains uh, profits. So if you need growth and if you need to sustain profits, of course, you have to reduce the cost of labor. Reducing the cost of labor may, means, you know, worse uh, contracts, uh, more flexible working conditions, less uh, bargaining power for labor, etc. So this is part of this model. It's part of the model that tries to sustain growth at all costs. It's not part of the model that tries to make the growth or zero growth uh, stable. Right. That's interesting. But I guess irrespective of which model you're looking at, you know, in, in when you're talking about you're assuming a, an increase in productivity, um, mm. I'm just wondering where, where would that come from? Productivity has been, uh, you know, a challenging issue to understand and has been falling um, and uh, recently in, in some major economies. Um, so w where does the increasing productivity come from? And if this if this job sharing was more efficient, uh, in some sense, would there not already be, uh, you know, would this not be an area of, of, of fast growth? Uh, no, that's a very good point. I mean, the point about productivity is very good, especially one debate we have had within the growth is that some people have pointed out to a kind of contradiction in the sense that if many of us ecological economists believe that the resources, especially oil, etc., are going to become scarcer in the future. Or if we are to get serious about climate change, we will have to, to charge them more, tax them more. Uh, this means, this is a lag on productivity in the sense that productivity up to now has basically meant that we substitute uh, people with machines and machines means uh, with the work that fuels are doing. So we're substituting people with fuels and that's what drives productivity. If we were to substitute back uh, fuels with people, this would mean, uh, this would mean in a sense, a lower productivity. And it is true that we are seeing a stagnating productivity. Uh, of course, if there, uh, and we cannot assume that if there is no growth, it's gonna be some, independent productivity coming out of heaven. No? Like growth means you invest and then because you invest you have increasing productivity, etc. 
But that's precisely the point. If we don't have an increase in productivity, then we stop having the problem of increasing unemployment uh, with growth. So if you're not becoming uh, more and more productive every year, even if you don't have growth, this means you don't have uh, any more people becoming redundant. So you don't have increasing unemployment if productivity doesn't increase. Then you have other sort of questions on how you stabilize the economy. Like if you, st if you have an economy that doesn't grow or doesn't have increasing productivity, how do you stabilize other macroeconomic factors like uh, the debt, for example? That's another super difficult uh, issue. But you're, you're seeing now, we start having a very different debate than the debate that it's currently had, which is how can we grow the economy at all costs? Uh, at least what the we are trying to do as a degrowth community is to open up this debate that uh, we're having right now. I'm not saying that I have easy answers and I'm not even a professional microeconomist. What I would like to see is like professional microeconomists and some of the, the strong minds that they are around to, to start getting engaged with these questions too. Yes, absolutely. Um, and as you say, it, it, it opens up all these kind of questions which, which you know, need to be considered and discussed. And uh, I just can't help thinking also, I see daily new reports about the increasing, you know, the, the, the robots and AI technologies which are, you know, cutting a swathe uh, through uh, many uh, job areas and, and promise to do so in more, uh, in a wider range of, uh, you know, uh, roles and into the law uh, mm -hmm. uh, professionals and so forth. Um, it just seems like the weight of uh, technology the weight of uh, financial investment as well because there's a you know this uh, uh, finance looking for uh, growth and you know returns and so forth which is integral to like, recent growth certainly in the in the global economy um, is it stands in, in in stark opposition to some of these ideas yeah I mean the trend is there I mean we have a Intensifying trend uh, towards automation with, uh, with the development of uh, new technologies, etc. I mean, this creates two standard problems. And on the one hand, is the problem of unemployment uh, with these new technologies. And of course, it's uh, the problem of effective demand. So if you have less and less people employed and you just produce with machines, who is going to be there to consume uh, your products? And I mean, these are problems with its economic theory has dealt since the 40s and 50s. And again, in this context, and leaving the environmental question out, it is super important to have a, the type of reforms that, first of all, these benefits in productivity are shared <clears throat> in terms of reduced uh, work rather than increased profits. And also that we provide some uh, out of the profits that, or out of the surplus that is created by these new technologies we provide a basic, uh, let's say, basic income, uh, common income, an income out of this commonwealth for everyone to live a dignified life because it's uh, completely unthinkable for a society to have uh, uh, people not being able to sustain themselves because, uh, because some others are profiting from new automation technologies. And this model is not going to work anyway. I mean, it's not going to work anyway for the simple economic reason that if you if you just fire people and you produce everything with machines, you won't have anyone to to consume these things these machines are producing. But then the picture becomes more complicated if we put uh, the resource uh, side in, because. If uh, oil and other resources uh, are going to become scarcer in the future, uh, and if we are to seriously reduce carbon emissions, which means we will have to make energy production uh, more expensive, uh, this uh, current tendency of substituting people with automated machines uh, will be much more complicated than that. Because as I said, this this process of substitution rests uh, on the abundance of uh, very cheap uh, energy from fossil fuels. Uh, if this is not the case in the future, then we have uh, more complicated scenarios. And in the recent degrowth conference, I heard a very intriguing presentation, which said that, you know, up to now, machines have been substituting, um, uh, let's say, easy labor, no manual labor people who, I don't know, bottle the Coca-Cola, you know, now you have the machines or the automated machines 
but substituting them. But he was saying if, if in the future energy becomes, uh, if automation advances, okay, and if energy, artificial intelligence advances, and if you have uh, expensive energy and cheaper labor because you have more unemployment, it might be that it will be more profitable to have uh, manual labor done by people and then start substituting the upper echelons, you know, like the, 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 the CEOs, the financial managers and all the people who do like the within quotes uh, intelligent stuff, the service stuff, you know, because yes. these are the ones who are going to be the expensive labor and if you have like expensive energy, you will have to target to where you can cut costs more. So then it will have it will be like actually the capitalist class, the one that will start being substituted by machines, and maybe then we will have even more uh, interesting, uh, interesting uh, contradictions and uh, developments. Fantastic. Now, do you have? Could I have two more questions? Have you got? Time? Yeah, yeah, please, yes. yeah, brilliant. I'm just going to write this down. I want to cut this out. This bit. <laughs> uh, yeah. Um, so you, you touched on a point there about consumption. Where does that fit in? Uh, you know, ideas of low consumption, ideas of no consumption, reduced consumption, um, which I know there's there's uh, increasing uh, interest in and, and certain groups are looking at more. Mm -hmm. Hello. Yeah, uh, sorry, let me say that again. So, so where do ideas of low consumption and no consumption and reduced consumption, or how important are they as a part of degrowth theory? Yeah, they are very important. And I mean, degrowth comes from this, uh, from this discussion about low consumption, degrowth, uh, decreasing consumption, and also transformation and different sort of consumption. It's not just about consuming less, and uh, depriving ourselves of consuming differently. So the whole idea around solidarity or sharing different ways of consuming or different ways, different types of consumption, uh, consumption that it's not uh, material, are part of the degrowth debate. But I think wh wh where the degrowth debate expanded by bringing in the ecological dimension is that we cannot just focus, as some sustainability scholars have done, we cannot just focus on the um, on uh, just on consumption, we have to see the integrated uh, the integrated system that links consumption with production and links consumption with production with a political economy. Just to give you an example, if if I'm just if I just out of my goodwill I start uh, consuming less, this means that I will save more of my income, uh, which will stay in the bank. This will be part of the investment for more growth in the future and consumption by others or consumption by me in different ways. So I'm not saving anything just by consuming less uh, myself and doing uh, the good deed. Um, in the same sense, if I consume just a more efficient car, I buy a car that I don't know burns less, less gasoline, uh, less gasoline uh, per mile. I might uh, start driving more because now gasoline is relatively cheaper for me. So what the growth uh, has brought in the debate is a little bit of a complication of what might appear as easy consumption fixes, you know, like just changing the technology and making it more efficient or just for individuals to reduce their consumption and that this would be enough. Yes, yes. Uh, but but nonetheless, um an important element, as you say. Very important. Yes, yes, I'm, I'm not sorry, because sometimes I might sound too critical and then uh, denigrating things. That's not the idea. The idea is that we need, we need to reduce consumption, but we need to do it in a way that also production and surplus are reduced. So these things uh, have to go together. And at the same time, it's really important to think of the infrastructures, the social structures and political structures that make it possible for people to consume less and live well. Because if you just tell people right now in the midst of the crisis, you know, you have to consume less to save the environment, of course they will tell you, leave me alone, you know. And uh, even people who are very committed to these ideas, when we try to consume less, we find that it's very diffi difficult because we are caught within structures that uh, do not make it possible for you to consume less. Like me as an academic, uh, there are many structures that make me you know, consume in a particular way, given that I'm part of a particular community. I have to fly for a conference or I have to travel very way, very far away from a conference if I want uh, to stay in my field, etc. So there are 
a lot of structural forces that make us consume the way we consume and that uh, this is also very important and should be part of the, of the conversation. Excellent, excellent. Um, so I have one last question and just before that, um, I've just got a note down this. Um, I'm just wondering, um, I know there's talk of the sharing economy, that's one of the, you know, and, and I talk also of this basic income, um, but maybe not so much focusing on those, but um, I'll be interested and I'll ask in a second this question, um, what do you think are a few of the most promising practical uh, ways uh, to achieve degrowth and maybe uh, in terms of places where they are actually been implemented. Hello? Yes, yes. No, I'm thinking. <laughs> That's always a tough question, you know. Yeah, yeah. It's always a tough question because you don't want to sound, uh, I don't want to sound uh, naive or putting too much emphasis on small alternatives. But there are people who are trying to, there are groups that they are trying to take economy economy in their hands, you know, so there are, there is a whole debate about alternative economy, so alternative ways of producing uh, food, uh, through food uh, producer and consumer cooperatives that try to have zero kilometer food and sort, a sort and closer circuits of uh, food production and distribution, zero kilometer food. Okay. Uh, okay, I'll ask the question in a second, I suppose one thing you're saying is that it is uh, a group of uh, ideas and theories that includes uh, quite a number of different progressive initiatives that are yeah. taking place independently. So uh, finally, uh, I'm just wondering what you think are two or three of the most promising degrowth uh, initiatives from a practical perspective. And maybe uh, if you can point to some areas or some uh, examples that, uh, that inspire you. Yeah, there are many, many initiatives, for example, around the uh, relocalizing food production and distribution, because food production and distribution is one of the, um, of the main uh, emitters of carbon emission and one of the main drivers of the ever-growing economy. So there are, uh, here in Barcelona, for example, there are very important initiatives about uh, of uh, people self-organizing into food um, uh, cooperatives, producer and consumer cooperatives, and trying to have short circuits of uh, food production and delivery in the city through the vicinity of the city, what is called the uh, zero kilometer, uh, zero kilometer food, like food uh, sourced and uh, consumed in a very uh, close distance. There are initiatives in relation also with uh, food waste. I find interesting also, and I haven't, um, but I haven't studied, I would say, the relationship with the growth enough, the developments around the peer-to-peer -peer production and uh, open source software and hardware production, like uh, people coming together from dif different parts of the world and uh, putting their labor, not necessarily uh, for the benefit of income, but for, for different sorts of uh, rewards. And, uh, and, and producing uh, uh, new products, new energy efficient uh, products uh, together. So there is, there is a kind of a different uh, mode of production that seems to be emerging within the capitalist economy that I find very interesting, though not necessarily geared towards the growth, but definitely much more promising uh, for transition in this direction than the current uh, centralized uh, corporate model. And then uh, there are, there are many interesting um, initiatives, uh, so-called around the idea of a new economy, of uh, different uh, forms and units of producing, uh, new types of uh, cooperative structures, uh, worker-based uh, or consumer-based uh, cooperatives, that uh, they are not based on the idea of uh, profit and uh, reinvestment. So they are based, they are geared around an idea of uh, sufficiency and producing social value rather than economic value. So these are just some of the examples. And of course there are many examples of trying to cope with, uh, with the precise impacts of uh, the crisis. Rather than the growth, trying to survive in an economy without growth. And in Greece, with uh, my student Angelos Varvarousis, we have studied a lot of the solidarity economy in, uh, initiatives that uh, 
sprang there spontaneously, I would say, as a, as a response to the Great Depression that uh, took place in the country. So we have like a network of uh, social health clinics, uh, urban and non-urban food gardens, food uh, delivery systems. So we see a lot of social innovation uh, taking place in the context of economies that uh, no longer grow or can promise growth. Well, that's very interesting, as particularly as you say in Greece, which has uh, obviously suffered such an economic shock. Uh, <laughs> this is the final question. Uh, what are your aspirations then for degrowth theory and these ideas over the next uh, three to five years? What, 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 how would you like to see it develop? For degrowth theory, I think for sure, I would like to see more people join and more more minds putting their efforts together to to deal with some of the questions we were touching upon today, like what conditions would we need for, what macroeconomic conditions would we need for economies uh, to be stable without growth or uh, with degrowth, what sort of political and economic changes and what sort of institutional changes would be necessary in this direction. Uh, so I would like to see more people, what, or what examples can we draw from, uh, from other societies? Uh, pre-capitalist societies perhaps, that managed uh, to keep a certain level of civilization without uh, growth. Uh, this doesn't mean that we would have to go back to, to this type of living, but what it means is that we can study as anthropologists, as economists, as political scientists, we can study and get inspiration about certain conditions, certain conditions of redistribution, of production, of regulation, uh, that might create uh, stable, stable economies uh, that do not grow. But of course, like understanding uh, the conditions or researching the conditions is not enough. The question is like, how can this infiltrate and uh, not infiltrate? Sorry, um, diffuse into political debates or diffuse into social understandings and public understandings? And I think there is a huge challenge. Uh, given the hegemony and the obsession that exists uh, with economic growth, which is understandable to the extent that the economies are still, many economies are still designed to either grow or collapse. So uh, in that sense, what I find the most important challenge is how can the ideas that we have already been producing and the ideas that we will be produced how can they reach uh, a larger audience and how they can resuffle existing debates. I'm, I'm not looking forward to, let's say, a political party or a politician or a social movement saying uh, we want the growth and we should start the growing. That's not the point. But the point is like how these ideas that they're being created within this community that it's criticizing and it's really taking seriously the idea that growth is unsustainable, how can some of these ideas start changing uh, actual policies, actual things on the ground, uh, creating the conditions to support uh, lower consumption, creating the conditions to support uh, alternative food systems, etc. Excellent. Well, that's uh, quite a vision and I wish you the very best with that, Georgios. And thank you so much for taking the time to share these uh, uh, very interesting and important ideas with the sustainability agenda. Well, thank you for the great questions. Thank you for listening to the Sustainability Agenda podcast. I hope you found it interesting. Please sign up at the sustainabilityagenda.com website or on iTunes to make sure you don't miss any future episodes.